1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today we will be talking to the two authors of Counting Women's Ballots, Female Voters from Suffrage Through the New Deal. The book is published by Cambridge University Press, and the two authors, Kevin Corder and Christina Wolbrick, are here with me today. How are you guys doing?
0: Good, thank you. Great, thanks.
1: Yeah, such a pleasure to have read the book and have you on uh, I'm sure that you guys have been working on this for a long time, but there couldn't be a more timely time to, to talk about this in the podcast with the election looming. Before we get to the interesting book, maybe you guys can um, just do some very brief introductions of of who you are and uh, where you are now. Kevin, you are the lead author. Do you want to take the lead in giving your introduction first?
0: Sure, I'm Kevin Quarter, and I'm a professor in the Department of Political Science at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo.
1: Yeah, and, and Christina, how about yourself?
2: Uh, thanks. I'm Christina Walrecht. I am an associate professor of political science and the director of the Rooney Center for the Study of American Democracy uh, at the University of Notre Dame.
1: Wonderful. You guys have so many other things and affiliations, but but uh, I'm uh, in the interest of time and and your interesting book. Let's let's get to talking about it. Uh, in reading a co-authored book, Kevin. I, I always suspect that there is some interesting origin story between the, uh, the so how the collaboration began. So I wonder if you could start us off by by just telling us a little bit about how uh, this collaboration came to be.
0: Sure, well, Christina and I met first in graduate school at Washington University in the early 90s, and when we both started our first jobs, uh, we discussed gary king's new book i think it came out when we were both in our second or third year and uh... christina brought up the idea that uh... the absence of information about how women voted would be a great application for ecological inference so we actually started talking about this project at the midwest political science association meeting in nineteen
1: ninety eight Wow, and and you've been working on the project ever since and and I mean, this this really does seem to be a book that that has so many different deep strands. This Christina, this is a, a book with a lot of statistics and also a lot of history. Um, you know, there's there's in some ways so something for everyone uh, in in this book. Um, let's start with some of the history of the subject matter, um, but the history before 1920. Uh, one of the thir- things that I learned uh, in this book is that before ratification of the 19th Amendment, there were some situations where women were given the right to vote. Um, You know, tell us a little bit about this and how this relates to the 70-year push for women's suffrage.
2: Well, as most students of American politics would be able to tell you, you know, the the struggle for rights and the granting of, of voting rights in particular, and I think rights in general, is is not a, a unidirectional path where we just sort of constantly move in the direction of the expansion of rights. Rights are granted, rights are taken away. And and so you're certainly correct that, for example, at the time of the founding in some American states, widows um, who owned property were permitted to vote. Uh, that only lasted for a short period of time, but there were actually women who uh, cast ballots uh, at the time of the founding. Um, and then the, the sort of expansion of voting rights for women um, was really a, a, a slow process process. process. As you know, a lot of voting rights um, really are controlled at the state level. The Constitution doesn't actually say that much about voting, but leaves that um, to the states. Um, And uh, some states enfranchise women quite early, but for very limited offices uh, that reflected their view of what women were qualified to have a say in. So, for example, as early as 1848, women in Kentucky could vote on school board elections, uh, given women's expertise. Uh, the the uh, state or territory of Wyoming was the first state to enfranchise women more broadly. Um, and at the time that the 19th Amendment uh, was ratified in 1920, there was actually a quite large number of states that had either very recently or in the decades before enfranchised women, again, either for a subset of offices or had granted them um, full suffrage.
1: Now, Christina, I'd like to uh, stay with you for a second um, and and follow up a little bit on that, related to what is some ways sort of the starting point of the book, which is uh, about this conventional wisdom about what happened next. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what textbooks have taught us about how women voted after the Constitution was amended. So what have, what have we learned? What, what is this conventional wisdom? I, I imagine some of the conventional wisdom that, that may have launched you on the path of, of researching for this book.
2: Well, as we suggest in the book, there's, there's really sort of two sets of conventional wisdom, wisdoms, I guess. And, and the first I'm going to call the suffrage's failure conventional wisdom. And so um, I, I would have people very early on in this project who'd say, well, why are you studying that? We know the answer to that. Women didn't vote, and they all voted just like their husbands did anyway. Um, and that's a, that's a conventional wisdom that emerged very early. And so we talk in the book about these headlines um, in places like Harper's. We may be one of the only pieces of political science research that cites good housekeeping, um, for example, that, that literally have titles um, as early as 1924, where they say, was women's suffrage a failure? And, and what they mean is exactly that, that, that basically women were really not taking up their new right, they'd fought so hard for it, and now they weren't using it, or they were voting exactly the same as men. That's one conventional wisdom. If you read uh, observers, sort of newspapers and magazines at the time, and if you sort of look at political science, there's, there's a sort of another conventional wisdom sort of lurking in the background. And that's this idea that in certain elections and in certain times, that even in these very first elections, women played a unique role. So to give just one really quite prominent example, the election of 1928 between, uh, the first Catholic nominee, Al Smith, um, and Herbert Hoover, the so-called rum and religion, uh, election that really brought up ideas about, um, um, the role of religion in public life and of prohibition in particular, many people believed that that this was a hugely mobilizing election for women, um, both over the issues of religion and in, in opposition to prohibition, but also of immigrant women who were excited by the Al Smith um, candidacy. And so you sort of have these conflicting views where on the one side, women don't vote and they all vote the same as men. On the other side, these ideas um, around certain elections that maybe women did play a unique role.
1: Now, um, Kevin, there, there are a number of methodological reasons why this conventional wisdom is, is not quite right or, or outright right wrong. Um, what was the primary methodological challenge to better understanding women's voting in the 1920s? And and how did you two overcome this with your novel data and, and novel ways in which you analyzed it?
0: Well, the, the simple fact is that there just simply were not uh, exit polls Surveys available in the 1920s to help us recover estimates of or uh, the the voting behavior of women and In only a couple of cases which we do leverage uh, Were men and women's ballots counted separately? I was in the state of Illinois So we really don't have the kind of individual level data in the 20s that we have today So we had to rely on aggregate data uh, census data and official election returns at geographic units like cities, wards, and precincts and counties uh, in a number of sample states. So it's the use of aggregate data that we collected and merged that's, that's uh, unique. And then we applied relatively novel, newish uh, strategies for what's called ecological inference to estimate individual level behavior from aggregate data.
1: Now we've all learned a little bit about this in the past. Would you give us our your uh, you know quick explanation of of this fallacy and and how it presents a problem for analyzing this time period with these data?
0: Sure. Well, you can see it in some of the data that we have. We we know uh, what, how, what proportion of women and men turned out in Illinois in 1920, and we can look at the aggregate data. And if you look at it in places where there were more women in geographic areas that were high proportion female, you see much higher turnout. So that would lead you to the mistaken inference that women were more likely to turn out. When you look at the individual level data in Illinois, the ballots, you can see that in every geographic area, women were less likely to turn out than men. So that mistaken inference from the aggregate data is the ecological fallacy, and we knew that that was something we had to overcome.
1: Now, Christina, using some of the approaches that that uh, Kevin just described, talk talk a little bit about sort of the first set of, of findings. Um, Is our common understanding uh, of this phenomena way, way off using the the reanalysis of the data that you guys have done on this? These really interesting historical data. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about where you're focused on. Uh, You you have um, selected some specific places. Um, Tell us about sort of what you found.
2: Well, I'll just briefly mention that um, the book looks at 10 states. Um, It is not fully representative of the United States, in part because of data challenges um, that we faced. To do do the sort of analysis that Kevin just described, um, uh, would be aided by having um, a, a large number, at least usually a 100 um, different observations. The state of Connecticut, for example, has eight counties, um, which made it uh, a challenge. Connecticut, actually, though, is in our data set, in part because in Connecticut, we were able to get election returns at a much smaller level of aggregation, um, what the census calls the minor civil division, what you and I know as things like townships and villages. Um, places out west that we would have loved to have looked at um, – were simply changing their borders. They were so new still that they were still redrawing county lines. Um, and that made it very difficult then for us to merge election returns and, and census data. So we've got 10 states. Um While they don't, represent the entire United States, they do give us a lot of variation on things like um, which party was dominant in that state, on uh, uh, the sort of political context, uh, region, um, a bunch of aspects of um, the political context that we might think was relevant. And so one of the real contributions where I'm able to do in this book is um, to say something about how women voted in these first elections in a much, much wider scale scope of places than was previously possible. If I could really briefly answer the second part, or at least give a little, taste, yeah, a little taste of it. Um, you know, we're, like, we're
1: on the edge of our, our, I, our I know. virtual seats wait waiting.
2: You can't wait to hear. Um, I, I would say, you know, like most conventional wisdoms, um, things were right and things were wrong. And so, for example, um, on the whole, um, not only was women's turnout lower than men, but on average it was much, much lower than men's turnout. So um, in our 10 sample states in 1920, for example, more than 60% of men turn out to vote in 1920 and less than 40% of, of women do. But one of the nice things about our, our uh our project is by looking at this larger sample of 10 states and having the variation that we do have, we're able to see that our answer to even that question about turnout really depends on where you look and how very important context was in really low competition places where women faced a lot of barriers to turnout, uh, places like the South. So Virginia is one of our um of our states, um, women's turnout is incredibly low in 1920, less than 10%. Men's turnout is not a whole lot higher than that. But in other states, in our uh, sample, places like Kentucky and Missouri, for example, that were much more competitive politically, and that means that parties uh, had a lot of incentive to get out the vote. There was probably a lot of activity around elections because they were so closely fought um, and were barriers to voting. Things like registration uh, requirements were not as onerous. Um, Women's turnout, even in the very first elections, was actually quite high. And in Kentucky, we estimate in 1920, about 57 percent of women, Women, turned out to vote in that very first election in which they were eligible. Um, and so a big part of our story is that women's experience as new voters really did depend a great deal on the context in which they first entered the electorate.
1: Yeah, you know, this this issue of context is something that that I'm very interested in the the role of parties, the role of competition, but but also of uh, mobilization. Uh, Kevin, I wonder you guys touch on this just to, to some extent. Um, is, is the, the amount of mobilization uh, another type of context that matters or are there, there are other forms of context that are that are more central to understanding the story?
0: Well the two things that we were really able to to focus in on the book are the, the legal restrictions that might set up barriers to voting and the level of competition between the two parties and those two things put together can be a really powerful influence for how women vote and win. Uh, so we, we looked at mobilization in the sense that, um, I'm wandering here, we looked at mobilization and found that, for instance, in 1928, where, as Christina mentioned at the beginning, um, there was an expectation that women would be highly mobilized and motivated to participate in the election because of the issues of Roman religion. We found that that was true, but it was also true that men were mobilized and to some extent to an even greater degree than women. So while the expectation was that the issues and the context and the way that that influenced women's vote would produce this huge spike in, in mobilization for women. It really produced an equally impressive spike in the mobilization for, for men. And that's the chapter where we really kind of settle on this idea that you really have to focus on, not on men or women, but on the context in which both men and women uh, both entered and participated in the electorate.
1: Yeah, Christina, this, you know, this is a book of political science a lot of history in it, but in making sense of this history, for, for other things that matter, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, what, what this more precise understanding of this time period tells you about subsequent time periods. Is, is there something that, that helps us understand the, the later development and, and um, mobilization of women and women's participation in politics and other ways that we can better understand through these kinds of uh, very sophisticated findings that you've developed here?
2: So Heath, I'm um, given the kind of podcast um, that that you uh, are presenting here. I'm going to take this opportunity to plug our next project.
1: Oh, fantastic! Um, <laughs> which,
2: <laughs> which you <laughs> must come back to talk about. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, Kevin and I are working on a book right now, um, tentatively t- titled "A Century of Votes for Women," in which we hope to combine our work on this initial period with other new data that's become available with traditional um uh polls and surveys um that your listeners are all familiar with like the American National Election Study and sort of tell the story of um how women have used the ballot since the 19th amendment coming up to its 100th anniversary in 2020 um and I guess what I would say is uh, as you know in the book we try to bring together both um expectations that were specific to women as voters that were either um popular during the time among contemporaries or that you hear from scholars again both of that period and and those writing about the suffrage period many many years later as well as thinking about more general uh, theories and empirical um, findings that we have in political science about what we would expect of new voters, what we would expect of less um, motivated or less interested or less experienced voters, um, what that might lead us to expect for the first um, women voters, and we really try to bring all those different perspectives to bear and then it sort of evaluate how well they work in this particular case. I think in terms of what our book says about thinking about women in politics now, or, or more generally, is, is what sort of constantly surprised me is, is how much the assumptions and the way that um, women as voters were understood during that time and by scholars then and immediately following has actually really not changed that much. Um, so ideas that women would care most about things that were very specific to women, that where men might be motivated by the economy or foreign policy or all these other things that we believe about voters in general, women were just going to care about women's issues. Um, however, those were defined, and obviously they were defined differently in 1924 than maybe in 1984, um, that women are naturally more kind and caring and sympathetic, and that this would motivate them to vote for particular kinds of candidates um, is an explanation that you hear a lot for the modern gender gap and women's support for social welfare policy. And it's an explanation that you really sort of sneaks into a lot of the commentary about women as voters in the 1920s. And so the, the plug for the next project, and, and certainly something that we talk about in, in this book as well, is that I think this recurring way in which our stereotypes and our assumptions about who women are in general and who they are as women as political actors shapes and even maybe biases how we interpret and understand what data and information we do have about women as political actors. Um, What we believe that to mean or to reflect is is not neutral but is shaped by um, a lot of assumptions um, and and stereotypes.
1: Yeah, And Kevin along along that point you very early in the book you you do make the point that that much of your data and much of the focus is on not all women at the time period but 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 certain groups of women I wonder if that that issue of 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 who was um, permitted to vote uh, in the nineteen twenties versus who who actually was was able to vote um, changes the, the way in which this, this, this story goes as you move ahead. You talk about this, this, more, this more recent project that you're working on that, mm-hmm. that looks to connect this up to later data. Are you able to, to um, broaden the analysis then to African-American women and Latino women with, with uh, future data that is, that is um, uh, maybe more fine-grained than you were able to grab for the, the earlier time period? Uh, talk about that, that other context that, that this exists in.
0: Well, that's one of the things that we're really trying to approach in a new way in the new book is that we know after 1965 and the, the Voting Rights Act that we're going to have a tremendous expansion of uh, the number of women of color who are participating in, in elections, and that's going to be an important change to the, the, you know, the electorate for women as a whole. So that's something that we really want to focus on because we are we're aware that in the 1920s when we're talking about women in the uh, early elections, it's more uh, native-born women, and in later elections of the nineteen early 30s, perhaps more immigrant women, but still, that leaves still a large proportion of the uh, eligible female electorate out of the picture, and so we're, we're going to look at that, and I just wanted to add one of the, the big surprises for me in this work was uh, when we found that women were less likely to support the progressive candidate in 1924, and that just upended a whole lot of expectations about how women were going to be distinctive and progressive-oriented voters. And so that was a first hint to me that the story um, about how women entered the electorate and what the implications were was really kind of inadequate and that we needed to do some more empirical work to understand that.
1: Yeah. Christina, in the interest of surprises and also given that this uh, podcast is going to uh, be broadcast on the eve of the election, Are there are there any things that you take away for trying to understand what's going to happen within the electorate in in this election? Are there surprises about how turnout is going to look that that you think are informed by what you've learned about the past?
2: I think as we've been suggesting that this distance between our assumptions about who women are Um, that the extent to which, um, we often spoke about women voters as some undifferentiated mass, and we missed the fact that, you know, immigrant women are not the same as native born women, that women of color in the South were systematically denied access to voting rights, um, until the 1960s, that, you know, uh, Latina women in the Southwest all had very different experiences, um, with the vote, um. And that the things that motivate women voters um, are often not actually as different from those things that motivate male voters. Um, while at the same time um, we do see throughout our history um these uh what we now call a gender gap, but sort of different patterns, maybe not enormous, but here and there, um, different patterns of vote support. I would expect to see that um In 2016 as well. Um, This is going to be a really challenging election, I think, for those of us interested in women as voters to understand uh, because um, obviously we have the first woman nominee in American history. We also have um, the other major party nominee who is also distinctive in um, his expression of gender roles. Uh, And so um, how those two factors combine to influence and uh, affect how women vote um will surely be the subject of multiple dissertations at minimum Um,
1: that is the the most optimistic way i think that anyone can 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 uh lead us into the election and and so so a future of dissertations is a very silver lining to a very bumpy uh i'm mixing the metaphor but uh, i think you get i think you get the point i enjoyed the books just just so much again the title uh of the book is Counting Women's Ballots Female Voters from Suffrage through the New Deal uh the authors Kevin Quarter and Christina Walbrick the publisher is Cambridge University Press I hope that uh before election day before you vote you go out and get this book it's it's really really interesting Kevin and Christina thank you both so much for your time today
2: thank you thank you, you Heath